This is the Cater Daily Podcast for Wednesday, January 27th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. The Trump administration was avowedly protectionist, and now a week into the Biden administration, is his trade policy just a less bombastic protectionism? Cato's Scott Lincecum details the early indicators that may be driving the White House trade policy. Just in the last uh, week or so, we've seen, I don't know if you'd can characterize them as fearful, uh, but certainly trying to change narratives about trade in the United States. One is that uh, China has overtaken the United States with respect to foreign direct investment, and that China also will have a little more clout at the World Trade Organization facing the new Biden administration. So when we think about global supply chains, uh, how should we evaluate the Trump years and America's place in the global supply chain? Sure. So I think um, the, the most important lesson we can learn is that even with all of the tariffs um, and all of the disruption at the World Trade Organization and the rest um, that the Trump administration implemented in, in four years, they really were unable to change the overall system and trajectory of uh, the of the globalization uh what we think of as globalization 2.0, this modern globalization. Um, and the reason for that is that the forces driving uh, that globalization are just simply far larger and far more seismic than um, a few tariffs uh, can fix. And I don't, you know, I don't even think, I don't know what, what could fix them, uh, quite frankly. And so what we ended up seeing is a lot of discrete pain for specific U.S. manufacturers, for farmers and, ex- and export markets, of course, uh, a bit for the Chinese economy. But overall, um, the Chinese economy, the U.S. economy really didn't change much. And we haven't seen, um, in terms of foreign investors, multinational companies, any really serious changes to their business plans, whether it's uh, producing in the United States or investing in China or investing in other countries due to you know changes in, in Chinese labor markets and, and governance. One of the, the things that uh, you make note of on uh, our blog and on Twitter is that there is this concern within the Biden administration related to our deficit in final pharmaceutical goods. Yeah. Why does the Biden administration view that as a problem? Right. So unfortunately, the Biden administration appears to have just uh, cribbed a page from the Trump administration when it comes to uh, trade policy. And in particular, um, looking at uh, trade balances, uh, in this case, like you said, pharmaceuticals, as an indicator of the overall health of the U.S. manufacturing sector, um, and as um, a kind of scorecard for whether trade policy has been good or bad. Um, and, you know, I think it's it's really incredible that they're doing this for pharmaceuticals, at least according to the Wall Street Journal, because we are living through a moment that has really proven uh, the excellence of uh, the United States pharmaceutical sector and the globalized nature of the industry. And this, of course, relates to the vaccines. Um, you have two companies in Moderna and Pfizer 
that both are producing these amazing life-saving vaccines, um, millions and millions of doses in the United States. They are doing that, however, through an insanely complex web of global capital and labor and services and goods. They are importing uh, pharmaceutical inputs or they're purchasing them domestically. They, of course, have their the entire staff uh, management is uh, are immigrants. And of course, in Pfizer's case, they're teaming with a German company, BioNTech, um, to, to produce that vaccine. And again, they're using existing facilities in the United States to, to crank out millions of doses um, you know, every week. And, and so that in and of itself is a testament to how we need an open regime and how kind of the free flow of of capital labor goods and the rest really benefits um not just uh the United States pharmaceutical sector but but humanity in general right and you couldn't by looking at the bilateral or by looking at a trade balance in pharmaceuticals know any of that you would think oh my gosh we are importing more pharmaceutical products than we're exporting we really must be losing in the great pharmaceutical manufacturing race but that of course leaves aside that all of the r&d is being done in the united states it also leaves aside that there is a massive uh, manufacturing sector for pharmaceuticals in the United States that primarily serves the U.S. market, being a massive consumer. So yeah, we import a lot, but we also export a lot and we produce a lot. None of that is captured by uh, some sort of you know trade balance statistic. The point that can never be made too many times is that when the United States makes stuff, it's often very helpful to be able to import stuff to help make that stuff that Americans then sell. If if I die, you can put that on my tombstone, which is intermediate goods are critical to yeah. American manufacturing. Right. And and that really gets to the new Buy American uh, executive order that's out today. And that, again, is completely missed by at least the political rhetoric from the Biden administration. You know, I'm sure that they understand this, uh, you know, on the economic side. But um, the the political rhetoric is something that, oh, if we increase the content requirements, so, you know, instead of uh, a product being 70%, if it, uh, it being American, quote unquote, if it has 70% American content, now they're going to raise it to 85 or something. What they really don't understand is that those types of restrictions end up hurting American manufacturers and they end up hurting American manufacturing jobs because, uh, you know, again, these companies rely on these imported inputs. Um, the biggest example being in Canada, the last time we implemented Buy American restrictions back in the 2009 stimulus, you had all these American manufacturers getting hurt because they had Canadian inputs. They had had so totally integrated with Canada, um, their supply chains, that it, it actually, these supposedly um, these pro- these policies supposedly intended to help manufacturing were actually hurting manufacturers. And, you know, in general, I think that gets uh, to get into this kind of broader theme we're hearing a lot these days about economic security and economic resiliency and how we need to renationalize our supply chains in order to bolster national security or bolster economic resiliency, particularly with respect to medical goods um, and pharmaceuticals and the rest. And again, this completely ignores 
how having a diversity of import supply, having these other alternatives actually can make the American manufacturing sector stronger, even in a time of a shock or a pandemic, because of course, the shock and the pandemic hits us too. And so if you have everything in one location, if you don't have a diverse supply, if you don't hedge your bets, so to say, you actually uh, make things uh, less stable and less resilient, not more so. And if you're, uh, let's take this down to the micro level. If you're an American manufacturer of some product and you need to have a particular input for that product, should your shopping venue be the United States or the world? Right. And that's exactly right. By increasing the number of suppliers, you increase the availability of supply. This is pretty straightforward. Um, by narrowing, of course, the, the suppliers, particularly narrowing it to one country, uh, you really make it harder for manufacturers to compete and to produce. And there's just so many examples of this in the real world as well. You know, when you restrict inputs of, for example, steel and aluminum, uh, as the Trump administration did in the tariffs on steel and aluminum, or if you uh, do this um, on industrial inputs through our anti-dumping, our trade laws, um, anti-dumping and countervailing duty uh, measures. Um, you you show there's studies show repeatedly over and over and over again that that actually ends up hurting manufacturing overall because again you're denying uh, producers the ability to um, to get what they need to produce and of course it, when you you they can still probably get it typically they can get it, but they're going to pay more for it. They pay more for it. They make less of what they make. They also are less competitive in global markets and they end up exporting less. You know, again, um, you know, one of the dirty little secrets of American trade policy and, and of economics in general is that our largest exporters, uh, exporting companies, exporting industries also tend to be our, our largest importing companies and importing industries. And you think of, you know, motor vehicles and aerospace, civil aircraft, you know, Boeing and the rest. Um, all of these guys uh, have a massive, complex multinational supply chain. And if you deny them access to that, they just end up making less stuff. Um, and those jobs that they have tend to be on the highest end of the manufacturing job food chain, which so you're you're just leading to kind of lower wage, lower quality jobs too. So uh, how much continuity here is there between administrations so far? Because I can remember, uh, as you've pointed out uh, in a number of places, support among Democrats for free trade was perhaps never higher than during the Trump years because he was sort of brash and bold with his uh, proclamations about particular companies that he wanted to punish or encourage to do more production in the United States. But uh, so far, it seems like a lot of the impulses of the Trump administration at the very least are carrying over into the Biden administration. Is that wrong? No, I think you're you're right. Um, so far, there has been really no uh, positive indication of a change in policy. I assume those changes are coming. You know, we're only a week into this, but so far, um, the all the tariffs are still in place. Um, we haven't removed even on 
closest allies. You know, the president says he's going to change from the Trump administration and work with our allies. Well, so far, all of the tariffs that were there a week ago are still there. Um, and that includes on imports from the European Union and Japan and other very close allies. Um, he is extending by American rules, which will hurt Canada. The Canadians are, are, are upset about that or at least worried about it. Um, and then, of course, canceling Keystone uh, Pipeline, which has trade implications, of course, as well. Um, and so there really isn't any indication yet of a change in approach, regardless of the fact, as you note, that most Democrats are pro-trade. Now, why is that? Well, I think there's probably two reasons. First is that the political folks in the Biden White House truly believe, for better or worse, that they need to be populist, economic nationalist, um, and they have some favors to repay with labor unions and 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 other groups that that delivered Biden the the industrial Midwest or the Rust Belt states. So there's some just simple um, political payback going on there. Um, but I think the other thing is that there's really a the Biden administration hasn't decided what they're doing on trade policy yet. There are some Biden advisors who are very much uh, protectionist and very much um, they want to continue a lot of the Trump administration, uh, if not the exact policies and at least kind of that approach. Um, but then there's the internationalist side. Um, and these folks are are certainly more open to uh, eliminating some of the Trumpian flourishes, uh, restoring the World Trade Organization, um, engaging in new trade agreements, uh, and the rest. And it, I don't think they really know their direction yet in terms of actual policy. And then finally, we need to be realistic about democratic support for trade. It's probably pretty loosely held among a lot of Democrats. Um, it's probably a reflection of kind of anti-Trumpism as much as it is pro-trade. And so while I do think there's uh, a legitimate increase in support among the Democratic Party and Democratic voters for for trade, free trade, and the rest. I don't think it's the eighty percent levels you're seeing in the polls, um, you know, right before uh, Trump left office. Scott Lincecum is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 